Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see everybody here. My name's Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff and uh, excited to be diving into Genesis chapter 3 with you this morning. If you're uh, here in the room, we're glad you're here. And if you're a uh, regular sort of family around the deal at Fullerton Free, we're always happy to see you. And it's nice to see more and more faces returning to the room. That's a, uh, certainly a, a praise. Uh, I also want to say welcome to those of you who might be guests. Maybe you've come with family or you're from the neighborhood or whatever. If you're a guest here, uh, we don't want you to feel like a guest for very long. We want you to feel like this is your home and anything I personally can do to help with that, please let me know. And for those of you who are watching online, we're excited that you're with us too. We recognize there are still some people who feel unsure about crowds and rooms and some of you are on the other side of the world and some of you can't drive a car. There's all kinds of reasons why you might be joining us online. We want you to know we're just as excited that you're with us today and we hope that God will stir you to act and understanding as we study this text together. Now here in Genesis 3, we're basically just looking at four verses this morning, and you might have thought, well, why don't we just tag this in to the message we studied last week as we looked uh, in all of Genesis 3, we've been looking at the fall of man. We've been looking at the sin of man in lacking trust for God and in feeling like they knew what was best and God didn't know what he was talking about. So we see them take the fruit that God had forbidden and we see them eat it. And in that moment, their eyes are open because at that point, good and evil exist for them to observe and to understand. They recognize the evil in their own hearts at that point in disobedience. And so as a result, they hide and they're ashamed and whatever, they make coverings for themselves. They do their best to sort of cover up that shame. And then God comes and walks. And we heard a great message on that last week from Scott. God comes and pursues them. He walks in the garden and he gives them an opportunity to own up to what they had done, which they don't initially take. But ultimately, we do see confession. They own up to what they've done. After some blaming and shaming and whatever, they, they take uh, responsibility in some ways. And as a result, then there's a consequence. So we see sin... And we see the confession of that sin and we see the consequence of that sin in the distribution of the curse that God puts on the serpent and on the woman and on the man. But then there's another, there's still another piece to this. And it's not just, it shouldn't just be folded in with the consequence of sin or the confession of sin, right? There's another piece, the final chapter in this story of the fall of man here at the end of three, which is what happens now. What happens after the sin and the confession and the consequence? Where do we go from there? I think for many of us, uh, there is a sense after shame and brokenness and the social consequences of our own failure and the failure of others, we wind up in a bit of fear and confusion and discouragement, maybe anger, questions, maybe isolation, loneliness. Where do we go from here? It's difficult to be disciplined, right? Nobody really likes discipline. Some of you may have heard me tell the story before of uh, when, my, when my son was really little, my son Jack, who's now like a full-grown man sitting over here, but when my son Jack was just a little guy, we were at Target, which is one of our favorite places to go, and uh, Jack had said he wanted to look at the toy section, and so as a good parent, we took him to the toy section, and we're looking, but I had made it very clear that we weren't, we weren't going to buy anything, right? We're just going to look at the toys, and so uh, you know that's sort of a fatal flaw in parents to try and have that conversation with kids, but whatever. So I said, yeah, we're not buying anything, we're just looking. So we go to the toy section, which is all the way, of course, in the back of the Target, and we're looking at the different toys and whatever, and all of a sudden Jack goes, I want that truck. And I was like, oh, well, that's great. You know, like we all want different things and it's nice to know what you want. So when you make your Christmas list next year, you can write that down on it. It's great to sort of already have picked out what you're going to want next year. You know, he's like, I want the truck. And I was like, I appreciate that. I don't appreciate your tone. So just dial that back a little bit. He goes, I want the truck. And I was like, okay, look. 
we're not going to do this, right? We're not going to do this thing where you make a big fuss. Like I told you already, we're just looking at the toys. We're not buying anything. If you make a fuss, I'm going to take you out of here and you and me will go sit in the car while mom does the rest of the shopping. And he goes, I want the truck. I want the truck. He starts to make this dude. By the way, if you've ever been in Target and you've heard that family that doesn't seem like they have control over their kid, that's us. That's me. We were at Target at the same time. That was so funny that we were there at the same time. Anyway. He starts to scream, I want the truck, I want the truck, I want the truck. So I got to follow through, right? Naughty kid. I scoop him up and I, I'm carrying the kid out of Target. Now, of course, they put the toys at the back. So I'm having to walk all the way through the Target, right? I want the truck, I want the truck. But a funny thing happened like halfway through, his, his, what he's yelling changes. And about halfway through the Target, he starts yelling, don't lock me in the car again. Don't lock me. It's hot in the car. People die in cars. Don't lock me in the car. I'm so lonely in the car. And I'm like, you guys, I've never locked this kid in a car, right? I've never done that. But the thing shifted. Why? You know, like people are looking at me like security guards. I'm trying to like carry this naughty kid and tell people like I'm actually a decent father following through whatever. We don't like to be disciplined, right? When we're disciplined, there is a sense in which we feel a sense of shame. We feel a sense of sorrow. We feel some grief. Maybe we feel some anger. And so it's important for us to look at this last chapter because some of you, as a result of your own failures or the failures of others around you, you may be in this season dealing with discouragement, dealing with shame, dealing with with frustration, right? Dealing with a, a, a sense of anger or confusion. Where is God when we're hurting? Well, I love the way Genesis 3 ends because God doesn't abscond himself. He doesn't disappear. God is still on the scene. What we see at the end of Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve move forward in the awareness of at least, and I think there's probably more than this, but of at least three things that give them hope in the midst of their pain. They move forward in the awareness of at least three things that are helpful for us to see as well. These three things are God's promise, right? God's provision, and God's plan, even in the midst of our pain. God's promise his provision, and his plan even in the midst of our pain. So for instance, here in the first verse we're studying this morning in Genesis 3, verse 20, it says, the man called his, name, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, this might not um, immediately connect, but this is actually, a, in some ways, it's a changing of the woman's name. She had already been called woman in chapter 2, which means out of man. Now here at the end of Genesis chapter 3, after the failure and the confession and the consequence of that, Adam changes his wife's name to Eve, right? Which means life or living. And it tells us in the text, he changed his wife's name because she was the mother of all living. Now, I don't know about you, but I think at this point, after everything that had gone down in this story, he could have chosen some really crummy names for her. You know what I'm saying? He, called, he could have called her, you know, Tricky McTrickerson or Fruity McJerk or whatever. Like, he could have called her some other things. Fruity McJerk, by the way, is my favorite. Uh, what he chooses to call her is living or life, the name Eve. And this choice of a name speaks to an understanding on Adam's part of the promise of God. You might not have heard it when we were looking at the curses last week, but if you back up to to, uh, the middle of the curses, both the curse for the serpent and the curse of the woman, look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 3. As God is uh, declaring this consequence, he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. He goes on to curse the man, but what I want you to see is that in the midst of that consequence, there's something that Adam hears that's important. He hears a promise for life in the future. He hears not only the promise for life in the future and that the woman will have offspring, point blank, but he also hears a foreshadowing and an allusion to the fact that there will be justice between the tempter and the temptee, that God will set things right. It's interesting to note that a woman in and of herself does not have an offspring. So this is interesting when he says, uh, when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. A woman by herself doesn't have offspring except in the case when a virgin conceives. And so what we see here in 3.15 and 16 is not only a nod from God toward the fact that life will continue, that they will have children, that they will be fruitful and multiply. And he's already said that in Genesis 2. But what we hear is God pointing at the coming redeemer who will overcome the tempter, who will crush his head, right? And Adam sees this and in his hope for new life that will come, not just natural life that will be born through relationship, but supernatural life that will come through the arrival of this redeemer. When he says to her, you're the mother of all living, when he calls her Eve, he is resting in the promise of God that life is not over. Physical life is not over and spiritual life is yet to come. He's looking ahead to this victory that will come down the road. He's, this text and, and these, this uh, allusion to the offering points us to the coming of the Redeemer. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. As sons. We go all the way to Romans chapter 16, verse 20, and it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. First John chapter 3 at the end of verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We know that Old Testament saints were credited, they had righteousness credited to them because they believed in their need for a redeemer to come. I will tell you that the first thing that brings hope in the midst of the sorrow and the pain and the shame that Adam and Eve were feeling was a confidence or a trust in the promise of God to redeem them. I can't make this case for sure, but after studying the text, I actually think it's possible that Eve may be the first person who ever put her faith in the coming redeemer. And when he names her Eve, it is his assurance in the life to come. She's the first one who looked ahead to the redemption that would be procured by the Son of God in the future. And so he calls her Eve. There's a confidence in the promise of God that's even found in the midst of the curse. Not only is there a confidence in the promise of God and what God has said, this confident expectation, trusting what God has said. And we know that salvation comes through faith in what God has promised. Not only that they find trust and hope in God's provision. Look at verse 21. Back to Genesis 3. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I don't know how many of you were here or maybe watching online uh, uh, several months ago when Jeff Lilly, I think it was around Thanksgiving, Jeff Lilly used an illustration where he brought fig leaves up on stage. And he said, look how sad it is when we try and cover up our own failures, right? How sad it is when we use fig leaves to try and cover up our own shame. We're fairly inadequate at doing that. We're not capable of covering ourselves. 
And so in Genesis 3, verse 21, what we see is not only the promise of God in verse 20, but now we see the provision of God. Here's what I want you to see in this. God hasn't left. He hasn't abandoned them. He is still engaged. He still cares about them. These are people who disobeyed him. These are people who ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. These are people who've had their eyes open because of their pride and are separated spiritually from God. And he has not abandoned them. He has not walked away. He's still looking at them and recognizing that they need his help. Well, that's great news for us, isn't it? Because you and I make mistakes. We blow it sometimes. We do the wrong thing. We're sinners, each and every one of us. And sometimes in the midst of that sin, it can feel like God's not going to want to have anything to do with me. And now I'm on my own. It isn't true. From the very beginning of Scripture, what I want you to see is that God still engages. God still cares. God still provides. And he provides in a way that you and I are incapable of providing for ourselves. God makes garments from skin. So we see that there is likely a sacrifice here, right? That there is likely a sacrifice. It's it's unlikely that God procured garments of skin out of the air, although he's certainly capable of that and the power of his word. What's more likely is that something had to die for the first time, that an animal had to be sacrificed, that blood had to be shed in order to make these coverings. So we see the cost of covering. Once again, as in the promise of the offspring of the woman crushing the head of the serpent, once again, we see a foreshadowing or a flashing sign, an arrow pointing ahead to the covering that each and every one of us would need through the shed blood of Christ. That there would come a day where Jesus would come, fully God and fully man. He would take the sin of the world upon himself. He would die on our behalf. He would rise from the dead and extend to us by his grace this resurrection life. Because we couldn't cover ourselves. Because we couldn't pay for our own sin. Because we were weak and broken. God engages. He cares for Adam and Eve. So not only do they see God's promise, they see his provision, his love and his sacrifice. He provides for them despite their shame and failure. And this is a picture of blood shed for covering. God clothing us. I love what it says in Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We put him on. You see the covering picture? The picture in Genesis 3 and the picture here in Galatians that we are clothed with Christ. That was foreshadowed all the way back. Both the promise of God and the provision of God. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst midst of depression and discouragement and all kinds of questions, we can trust in the provision of God. This publicly viewable covering that he gives them. God provides what we need and he provides what we're incapable of doing on our own. Remember at our best, we're just sort of covering ourselves up with fig leaves. Even in the story that Scott told last week about the prodigal son, remember what the father does when the son comes home? He wraps him in a coat. He puts a ring on his finger. There's a picture there again of the covering of God for those of us who are lost. So Adam and Eve find hope in this last section in the promise of God, in the provision of God, and lastly in God's plan in their pain. Let's look at this last part together. Back to Genesis 3. In verse 22 it says this, then the Lord God said, behold the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, By the way, here's here's a fragment sentence by God. That sentence doesn't finish, but you get the insinuation. He says, lest he eat from the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And at first glance, you would look at that and go, wow, they already got cursed and now they've been expelled, right? He drives them out of this lovely place where they're living. Now they've got to go and work the ground. Well, there's a piece of this expulsion that is judgment, but that's just a tiny piece. The biggest piece of this expulsion is God's preservation in anticipation of redemption. I don't want to use a ton of giant words that lose you, but God in Genesis 3 is already anticipating the way in which he will preserve and redeem the life of fallen man. What it says here is God looks at the man and woman and he says, I can't let them stay in the garden because the tree of life is there. What we understand from, from, the, from what's implied is that there's something about the tree of life That if Adam and Eve in their broken state, disconnected from spiritual life, spiritually dead, if in that broken state they'd eaten from the tree of life, the implication here is that they would have been fixed in that position, that they would have been stuck like that forever and ever and ever. And God wasn't satisfied to have them separated from him forever. And so when God drives them out, he does so as an act of benevolence. He does so as an act of grace. He does so as an act of provision and an act of protection right? The banishment preserves them in anticipation of redemption. And he puts up this cherubim and the sword that's flashing back and forth. There is no question that the way back to the tree of life isn't just hard, it's impossible. It is not possible for us to get to the tree of life. Now, the tree of life will show up again, right? You could look at, uh, you could look at Revelation chapter 22, and next to the river of life, we see the tree of life rooted. It produces 12 different kinds of fruits in their seasons, and it says the leaves of that tree are for the peace of the nations. So the tree of life will show up again. It isn't that mankind will never have access to the tree of life, but that mankind cannot access the tree of life in his own strength and in his own power. The only access to the tree of life for us is through Christ. Christ is the only access we have. That's why Jesus himself will say in John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? Jesus is the way in which we have life. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Right? Jesus is the way we have access. But when God boots him out, there are times in our lives where things are hard, where we're experiencing pain, where we don't understand why things are happening the way they're happening. I guarantee you that when God looked at Adam and Eve and said, oh, you got to get out of the garden, and in fact, I'm putting up a guard to keep you away from the tree of life, that would have been a difficult moment for them. That would have been a hurtful moment, a, a moment full of question, a moment full of anxiety, a moment full of doubt, a moment full of fear. And what they may have seen in that moment that we need to see as well is that when God sent them out, he didn't do so because he's full of vengeance or because of his wrath or because he's petty. He sent them out because of his great affection for them. It was his love that prompted him to drive them away in order to preserve them for redemption down the road, right? It's only through Christ that that happened. God drives us to what's best, And it's important for us to understand that sometimes the most loving thing is also the most painful thing. That's hard, isn't it? That sometimes the most loving thing is the most painful thing. You may be experiencing pain and doubt and confusion and anger and and anxiety and isolation and all of those things. And sometimes it's hard to understand what God is doing. 
But what we see from Genesis chapter 3 is that in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of our questions, we can find hope, like Adam and Eve. We can find hope in the promise of God. We can find hope in the provision of God, that he doesn't, he doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't disappear. And we can find hope in the plan of God, even in the midst of that pain. Even in the midst of that pain. The Bible is clear about the fact that, that sometimes that pain or that difficulty refines and transforms us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know the kind of obstacles you're facing. I don't know what the consequences of your sin or the sin of the people around you have created in your life. But the great news that we don't want to miss is that in the final chapter of the fall of man, God is still active. God is still gracious. He still cares. He is still providing. He is still thinking about the future. And his plan cannot be thwarted. His plan cannot be undone, and it is not undone, even when it feels painful to us. God is still refining. He's still transforming. He's creating in us perseverance. For you, it is important, for me, it is important to understand that God's promises are true. He will provide what we need, and he is a redeemer. That his promises are true. That he will provide what we need, and that he redeems it all. I know these things feel overly simplistic. It feels like Bible, you know, Sunday School 101. But we miss this a lot in our lives. You know, I wonder if you, will, uh, if, if you will tolerate a little bit of vulnerability from me for a second this morning. I, um, this particular message r- resonated with me in a, in a very personal way. And I don't, I don't do this a lot. I tell stupid stories about my family a lot, right? I tell stupid stories about my kid at Target or whatever. But I don't t- talk about a lot of the things that are happening in my life personally. But the promise and provision and the plan of God in the midst of pain, this, this thing like... I needed this message this week. I needed to see this in the text. When I came to this church uh, in 2017, I knew it was going to be challenging, right? I knew, I knew. I mean, even when we visited in 2016, uh, as we drove away on one of those Sundays where I just was a guest pastor, I said, what a great church. This is such a great church full of great people. But they, they need a shepherd. They need somebody to come in and love them. And then after going through the long process of the search and all of the different hurdles that had to be jumped, it was confirmed again and again in my heart and in the heart of my wife that God was calling us to this place in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the, the division and the lack of trust and the gossip and some of the things that were happening. We came in with our eyes wide open feeling like, you know what, God has called us here and we love this church. We love this church still. But I will tell you that this has been the hardest, worst year of ministry in my life for a lot of reasons. Many of them, it's been the hardest year of your life as well. In the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of 600,000 people dying and many more being sick, in the midst of political tension and racial tension, in the midst of theological tension, in the midst of isolation, 
In the midst of all of these things, uh, it's been a year where I feel like I've been criticized on every side. If I say something about racism, I'm criticized from people who think it's too much. And I'm also equally criticized by people who think it's not enough. If I say something about politics or if I don't say something about politics, which tends to be my course, I'm criticized because of what I didn't say and I'm criticized because of what I did say. It's been a brutal year. I'm scared of my email now. I'm scared of my text messages. I've moved them off the front page of my phone. In the midst of criticism on every side, uh, I also lost my mom this year, and then my grandmother died, and our family dog died, right? In the midst of budget cuts at the church and painful staff reductions, in the midst of constant shifting ministry strategy where we didn't know if we'd get to be in the room or on the parking garage or if we'd be in a tent or if we'd be just on cameras or if we were going to record it or live stream or whatever, the constant shifting and the chaos of that have been difficult. And then many of you know that in the midst of all of that chaos and all of that pain and all that difficulty, I also had to walk through the loss of a trusted advisor and a close friend in, in the chairman of our elders this year, something I absolutely did not anticipate. As a result of this bonkers year and a half, um, I have felt and feel many times discouraged and hurt and lonely and anxious and confused and questioning. It's all the stuff we're talking about today. It's hard. It's hard, but I'll tell you what. I find solace and hope in the same things that Adam and Eve see in Genesis 3, 20 through 24. First, I find hope in the promise of God. Because he called me here, right? I saw it. We walked through it. He called me here, and I have no question about that. My calling remains firm. I will tell you there are many times this year where I've said to my wife, like, this is hard. And she goes, yes, but God called you. God called you. So what, nothing else matters. God called you. And she's right. I rest in the promise of God in that he gave us mission to be a church of people empowered by the Holy Spirit. A loving community, united in sacrifice, living like Christ for the glory of God. He called us to a vision to see our neighborhood in this world transformed in radiant peace rooted in confident expectation, revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity, prophetic engagement rooted in demonstrable faith, and unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. I am as convinced that God called us to those things as he ever did. I came in 2017 confident and excited about leading humbly alongside the elders and the staff. But this year has been hard, and I have found hope in the promise of God. The vision hasn't changed, the mission hasn't changed, and the calling upon my life has not changed. Not only that, I've seen his provision. So just like Adam and Eve were clothed in the garments of, Christ, uh, of, the, of the slain animal, and we are clothed in Christ, I've seen God's provision this year again and again. I know some of you have wondered why you haven't heard a lot from me about this stuff. Well, part of that is I, I, don't, I don't want our worship to be about me. I want our worship to be about Christ. It needed to be in the text for me to, to talk about it, right? But it's here in the text, trusting the provision of God. I also didn't want to defend myself. I don't think that's the posture for a, for a biblical leader. I think what Jesus does is he, he, he trusts himself to him who judges justly. Right? I'm, I continue to entrust myself to him who judges justly. So I haven't talked a lot about this, but let me tell you how I've seen God provide in this year for me and our church. Number one, he's revealed himself to me in fresh ways through scripture, worship, through times of silence, and through renewed community, even in the midst of isolation. 
I've seen our church do incredible ministry, God's provision through incredible ministry in a crazy hard season. We, you, we have revealed Christ in this neighborhood in ways that I'm so proud of to watch God reveal himself through us. I've seen his provision. The elders have responded to unprecedented departures and criticism and division, and they've remained united, remained united. They were united and they are united, remained united. United in prayer and humility and support for our church and our staff. In this year, I've seen God's provision in, in the closeness of my family. We've been sitting around the kitchen table a lot, so that's been good. But we're tighter than we've been before. I've seen God provide through new camaraderie with other pastors in our city and in our county and in our state. And even with EFCA, Evangelical Free Church of America leadership. So that there is a sense of renewed growth and a sense of camaraderie and a sense of shared uh, encouragement. Right? I've seen and found personal clarity, insight, and guidance in meeting regularly with a therapist. I started seeing a therapist in January. I told him the first time I met with him, I'm like, I'm not sure I believe in this, right? And he goes, uh, he goes okay, well, if you, don't wanna, if you don't wanna do this, well, let's do one, and if you don't like it, then we won't do it anymore. It's been so great to have somebody just to talk to about my pain and about the hurt and about the constant uh, sorrow and grief, right? I found personal clarity in meeting with him. I've been so, so thankful for our staff who have persevered in the midst of similar hardship. Isolation, criticism, a, a, a constantly shifting target. I see God's provision in that. And I will say that there are numerous members of this body who have faithfully prayed for me, encouraged me, and blessed me at just the right time. I've seen some of your faces in this room already. You know who you are. I, I, I couldn't have done this year without this body. So not only do I have hope in the continued promise of God and his calling to me and to our church, not only have I seen his provision in me and in our church, but I also see his plan in the midst of my pain. I've been reflecting on all that I've learned this year. And I'll just give you a couple of these. This is an exhausted list, but let me, let me just give you a few of the things God's taught me in his plan in the midst of the pain. The first one is, I've learned this year that I'm not impervious to unkindness, like I thought I was, right? I, when I came in, I felt like, no, I'll be fine. Like, I can take it, you know? Like, I've, I've had people, you know, frustrated before. Like, this will be okay. I've learned that that isn't true. Like, I, I'm more susceptible to unkindness than I thought. I've learned that I'm deeply affected by others' opinions and that I need to be defined by God alone. You've heard me preach that over the years. I, I don't know that I live that very well. Sometimes I forget that the most important thing about me is that I'm a child of God and I'm loved by him first. I've learned this year that while I thought I could handle disagreement myself, I actually need to ask for help sooner. I think things would have gone differently with the, the elders who left if I'd have just said to the rest of the elder board, help, I'm in over my head, I don't know what I'm doing, right? I think that, that's something I've learned this year. I hold on to hurtful comments and criticism, but I rapidly set aside and forget encouragement. I've learned that I have to be a better listener to the right voices and make adjustments sooner. I learned that I have to trust the leading of the Holy Spirit and take action when he prompts me. I've learned that I need to learn the balance, and I'm still learning this, the balance between the meekness and the boldness of Christ. I place a high value on humility, but there are also places where I have to lead, and I'm learning how to, how to do those things together. I've learned that no matter how much I want reconciliation, I can't make it happen on my own. It doesn't matter how bad I want to make it fixed. I can't be only one side of that. I've learned that some of the deep-rooted bitterness, critical spirit, lack of trust that's existed in our church for a long time 
I'm not going to be able to fix it by myself. I'm not going to be able to fix it by myself. We need divine intervention and supernatural healing. I've learned that our unity at this church is incredibly vulnerable to persistent gossip and rumors, and I'm not going to be able to fix it by myself. We need divine intervention and supernatural healing. I'm learning not to lose heart or nerve, but to seek the tempered resilience that only comes through the fire, right? Through the fire. And all of these learnings are just part of God's plan for me in this painful year. This is just a, this is just a fraction of the things I'm learning. Here's what I want you to hear. Adam and Eve, in the midst of questions and pain, their own failures, the failures of one another, in the midst of all of that, they found hope in the midst of the story of the fall. Why? Because God's promises are true. Because he is a provider, he does not walk away. And because he has a plan to redeem and restore even in the midst of pain. Not only can I teach that this morning out of Genesis 3, I, you guys, am living it. I'm living it. I want you to know that it's important to me that you know that I was called to this place. I love this church. And more importantly, I love you guys, right? I love you. We're in this together. Thanks. <laughs> um, I want you to know, I want you to know that our mission, our mission and vision are more vital in 2021 than they've ever been. This world needs our mission and vision more than it's ever needed. When we first rolled that out, the world didn't need it as bad as it needs it now, right? So we, we are absolutely committed to the same vision. I want you to know that I'm not going to quit. And uh, I'm not going to run away. Or abandon my calling. I'm here with you for the glory of God and the good of others. And he will heal us. And he will use us in this neighborhood and in this world to show those who don't yet know it that his promises are true. That his provision is all we need. And that he has a plan for us even in the midst of the pain. Would you pray with me? God, I thank, I thank you for uh, just giving me strength to walk through this thing in the weirdness of sharing my own story, but also in recognizing, God, that, that many of us are in the same story, that it's been such a wreck of a year. God, I pray that you would help us turn to you to find hope in the midst of our confusion, frustration, our questions, our sorrow, our isolation, that we would turn to you. And that we would find hope in your promise, your provision, and your plan, even in the midst of our pain. That we would see that the redeemer you are, you have always been and will always be. We surrender our lives and our church to you. And we pray that you would have your way with us. And that you would transform this city for your glory and the good of our neighbors. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.